put that coffee down. Coffee is for creators only. My name is James Newcomb, and I'm inviting you to an exclusive accountability program that will help you set and achieve your creative goals. It costs nothing but your time and patience. Go to coffeeisforcreators.com to learn more. It's the story of the trumpet in the words of those who play it. What is it about this crazy mass of metal tubing that makes us laugh, cry, want to flat out quit at times, and then keep coming back for more? My name is James Newcomb, and I am thrilled to host this show that brings on world-famous, not-famous, and everything-in-between trumpeters to share what keeps the trumpet blowing and the music flowing. It's the Trumpet Dynamics Podcast, and it begins now. Hey everybody, this is James Newcomb coming into your earballs, and I'm really excited to bring on to the show today Mr. Jeff Luke. Jeff spent 13 years touring with the Atlantic Brass Quintet many, many years ago, and now he is in his 18th season as Associate Principal Trumpet with the Utah Symphony. Go on a limb and say that there are just a few slight differences between the two gigs. And just, we might, a fl- just a few, James, yeah, and we, just a few. And we might get into it, but okay. it's nice to have you, man. Thanks. I appreciate you having me. It's good to be here. The way that Jeff and I met was back in, I guess it was a couple of months ago. I was in Minnesota visiting family, and your colleague, Travis Peterson, is from Minnesota, as I, as am I. And he was putting on a a show up in, uh, I can't even remember the name of the town. but it was Malacca. Real, Malacca, that's right. Malacca. Real small town. There are these world-class... You know, really high, highly trained, elite musicians at this bandstand in this small town in Minnesota. It was you and Travis and fine horn player that's a freelancer in the Twin Cities, a couple of guys from the Minnesota Orchestra. And it was just a really nice time. It was really fun. Well, we had a really good time, too. We really did. Yeah, it's interesting. I was telling Travis, who hopefully we'll get him on the show so soon. But I was just saying, like, the, the, like the music and the setting wasn't exactly it wasn't like a perfect fit you know it's like you have this uh kind of quote legit music right out, outside in the bandstand of this small town <laughs> right but there's but there's just something about sitting there in the nice summer breeze uh just nice warm weather just listening to great music it was just a really fun time even though it wasn't a perfect fit it was really nice on our end, it was really nice, too, because we had been, you know, hampered a lot by the virus over the year. And it was nice just to be out in the beauty and just, you know, playing what we wanted to play to a friendly audience, you know. And not having a mask that you pull down when you right. put your horn to your face. <laughs> huh. right. right. Do you do that during the concerts or is that just during the We do. We, uh, we, we are required to wear the masks. Uh, inside the facility, on stage, and then, you know, the string players, you know, percussionists wear their masks the whole time. Whereas, you know, if we have, you know, 30 bars of rest or something, we, we put them up and then a few bars before we come in, we take them off. You know, I have a trumpet case full of black masks. I'm not sure how much good it's doing, but... It's, it's like tuxedo, tuxedo masks, huh? It to is. Go, it's to, a, it's to our, go their tuxes. 
It's our formal mask look. <laughs> All right. Well, I don't want to get, spend too much time into that rabbit trail because uh, that's probably been beat to death and it's not exactly <laughs> my favorite topic. Right. But um, something I like to ask each person that's on the show, because everyone's got a different story, right? Right. And I want, I want to know how you got started playing trumpet. Just take us to the first okay. days. Well, um, my, my father was a musician. And he had my sister and I in piano lessons, you know, starting at age five. We were playing the piano, studying, you know. And then uh, in the fifth grade, it was Christmas time, and I pulled out a nice, big-looking, cool present and opened it up, and it was a trumpet. <laughs> and I can't honestly say that I was super excited about it because I knew there was going to be more practicing involved now, <laughs> you know. But my father had been a trumpet player in his youth and uh, had become a composer and conductor. And, you know, he was really in love with the trumpet. And, you know, I, I eventually fell in love with it. And that's why I stuck with it. But it was a Christmas present in the fifth grade. I bet you didn't get that one before. So, okay, so you got a gift and that was it, how you got started. Yeah, it was It was just I opened up the, the present under the tree and it was a <laughs> trumpet. And okay. I'm like, no, more practicing. <laughs> But, uh, you know, my, my father gave me my first, you know, year of trumpet lessons, and I was off to the races. What made it appealing that first year as a wee lad? You know, um, on the piano, anyone can make a sound on the piano. And I thought it was interesting that you had to work harder to make even just a sound, and so it was interesting to try to, to make a nice sound and then to try to put a few nice sounds together. It was a different thing than the piano. And that's what it was, the, the difficulty of trying to just make it sound nice compared to just pressing the button down. I've heard so many stories asking people over, over the years. They see three buttons on the trumpet and they say, well, looks easy to me. That's, one, that's <laughs> the one for me. And then they quickly find out, uh, well, it's not exactly the case, is it? It's not really exactly the case. I'm still trying to figure the thing out after all these years. Yeah, it's interesting how just this massive metal tubing, what is it, 12 feet of metal tubing twisted together and a little mouthpiece, such a headache, such a source of frustration, makes me want to bash my head against the wall. I've done that. I've thrown a mouthpiece out the window, but it's also a really great source of joy for me too. So yeah. I'll give it that. Well, it makes it joyful. Sitting on a stage and making people happy. Hmm. Just just last week we were playing um, an opera. We, the Utah Symphony puts on four opera productions. We have a an in-house opera company, and they hire the principals from around. And we just put on the Barber of Seville, and just to hear live a live audience laughing and having a great time is what what makes it joyful for me. Look, and when I'm on the stage, you know, as opposed to the pit, on the stage and I can see the faces mm. when it's something, a really cool moment or something in the music, that's what makes it great for me. Yeah, there's something special about a live concert. I love listening to a CD, but I just love that ambiance of walking into the auditorium and then there's these world-class, highly trained musicians. Just, the, just them noodling around in their instruments is just... A, a symphony, it's beauty in and of itself. It's wonderful. Right. I agree with you. When I was, when I was a little kid, my, my father was conducting the symphony in Oklahoma City, and I would go, and I would just see 
everyone warming up and the trumpet players and just the ease in which they played really made me want to get a lot better too. And I, I agree with you, just watching the, the people, even if it's not the music yet, just watching them and making those amazing sounds on their horns. Yeah, I don't have a whole lot of orchestral experience myself, but I have played with a couple of orchestras and it's just being in the rehearsal and having, having the conductor just kind of go like this with his hand. It's just yeah. like pressing play on a CD. It is. It's so and, wonderful. And he's playing live people, you know? Oh, it sounds so nice. It's really fun. That's probably why orchestras will never really go out of style. Although their their demand has changed over the years, they're never going to go extinct just because there's just something amazing about that combination of instruments. I agree. And there are some new things going on. You know, like we play a lot of movies now. We're, we did some of the Harry Potter movies, and we just play the soundtrack, and they come and watch the movie. And they, you know, we get a whole different set of people that come in for those things. and Like the whole the, movie or just clips of the movie? The entire movie. Really? We play the movie. You know how they record those things. They play, you know, a scene at a time and you could do it over and over and over. And, and they have the best players in the world. Well, we read the whole, the whole movie down, Sheesh. you know, usually on one rehearsal. And the, the conductor has... A, you know, a laptop open in front of him with a set of headphones and he's, he's got cues and it's, it's an incredible experience. Wow. So it's so, kind of evolving a little bit in, in that way. But I think, like you said, it's, it's, it's dying down a little bit, but there will always be the diehards that love that combination of instruments. Yeah. Not to mention the diehard composers who will put it in their movies. And that's true. Yeah. That's very true. So like they'll, they'll have Harry Potter, with the dialogue, but minus the music? Right. And then you guys provide the music. That's right. Wow. And they put the uh, the subtitles up because you can't possibly play into the texture as much as when it's produced. You know, when it's really soft and you can barely hear it, we're just playing piano or pianissimo. And so they, re you know, they have the choice if they want the words or not. And we've we've done the entire Harry Potter series. We've done... Raiders of the Lost Ark, a couple of the Star Wars, you know, it's it's been kind of a neat a neat trend for us. You know, just playing an entire John Williams movie is incredibly rewarding and difficult. Like Indiana Jones. Yeah, we played we Star played Wars. that. Yeah. Wow. Star Wars we played. I I've heard of orchestras doing uh clips of movies, but I've never heard of like front to end the whole movie with the credits guys. and everything seriously yep wow <laughs> they, don't, they, they learned not to turn the lights up for the credits oh wow you know because that's some of the hardest playing too yeah yes yeah, you the listen best. that's the best music it is and so that's that's something that we've been in uh, in fact what are we doing we're doing um home alone or something mm, next week Christmas. or something i can't okay. remember something like yeah, that. yeah 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 got it John Williams did that too. No, no, it's Back to the Future. My, my fault. My fault. Ooh, wow! Right? You make me want to get on a plane and go to Utah. Come to Utah. It's in, it's in a couple of weeks. I'll get you a ticket. A plane ticket? <laughs> <laughs> I can afford the orchestra ticket. Don't worry. That's a good one. All right. So I have a question for you. You got it. What, What's up? What is the difference between a principal trumpet and an associate principal trumpet? Okay. 
The principal trumpet is the main soloist of of the trumpet section. Um, I acted principal for four seasons, four four years, four calendar years. So what I thought the difference was, was I got to pick the things that I really wanted to play. And and there's no way that you can play all of the pieces. You just, we don't have enough chops. The trumpet players, we need to split it up. And so when when I was acting principal, I chose the things I really wanted to play and I handed the rest over to the other guy. So Travis, being the principal trumpet player, he hands over to me the things that he doesn't want to play or... You know, the, one really great example was uh, they programmed the Brandenburg Concerto Number no. Two and Copland Symphony Number no. Three in the same concert, and so Travis had to decide. Hmm, <laughs> and he chose he chose the Brandenburg, and so here I am, associate principal trumpet playing principal on Copland Three, which I think is one of the bigger bigger blows out there. So there's enough to go around, and we're a good marriage in that way because he he likes to hand off to me some of the things that I really enjoy playing. I really enjoy uh, piccolo playing, and I'll be playing, you know, the Messiah coming up. He handed to me, and I really like the modern works. I, I like doing the the homework and figuring out the rhythms and the the difficult intervals and and putting in that work. And he. He'd prefer to play Brahms and Bruckner and you know Stravinsky and so and oftentimes there's uh, you know two solo parts within one piece like Berlioz does that a lot and so there's a first cornet and a first trumpet and so he'll just pick the one of those basically he has to be you know the best player and he is and it's great to have him and I'm also grateful that he. He likes to to give me important roles in the orchestra, so I'm certainly not bored. But that's the difference. And if he ever, you know, one time Travis got kidney stones, and I played, you know, principal on the whole week, and that happens sometimes when someone's out sick or something like that. So uh, that's that's basically the difference. A typical concert would be, you know, Travis plays the the big piece, and I play the concerto principal. And if it's a big enough piece, I'll also play third in the section. So, so I'd be third trumpet and associate principal as well. So I think it's a good spot for me. I enjoy uh, associate principal. That's that's cool. A lot of people they find that their comfort zone is playing not the not being the the face of the section, right? But kind of playing a supporting role. Yeah. I think uh, John Hagstrom is the best example of that. He's just been second trumpet for years and years and years. And yeah. I'm sure he's got the chops for the of course the, the principal, but he just likes that suits him. It's interesting. That's and that's that's great. And you know, I think second trumpet is an art all in itself as well. You know, to listen and match and be able to play those low notes and octaves and that's a, that's I'd rather play a higher part. That's difficult for me. So I, I think that some some jobs are more suited to certain individuals, for sure. Yeah, you get out of that high school mentality of give me the first part on everything. Yeah, I want to be and, first chair, yeah. And, and you realize that there's a lot of virtue in not playing all the high notes all the time. That's right. I, I definitely found that out when I was acting principal. I, I, I remember I played Alpine Symphony and also Sprague Zarathustra. I played the Brandenburg. I played 
the the Haydn trumpet concerto I played, you know, Pines of Rome, Chike Four, everything I can think of, I played. And the funny part is, you know, when you're in a 52 week orchestra, you know, you might play Alpine Symphony one week and Schumann Symphony two the next week, which is really light and you have to play soft and your face is all smashed in. So it's uh, the the repertoire doesn't discriminate. You know, and that's that's something also that it makes it nice for for Travis. It makes it nice for principal players to have a right hand man or a woman to do some of the lifting. Yeah, you you would think that the whoever is programming the concerts for the year would think, okay, what is best for the trumpet players? Yes, you they would don't think do that. that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. Now, that's were you a founding member of the Atlantic Brass Quintet? I was close, but. Um, I, they were, they were students at Boston University and they were studying with the Empire Brass who, who was, you know, Rolf Smedvig and Jeff Kurnow, who's now, now associate principal trumpet in Philadelphia. Um, Eric Rusk, who's a, you know, famous, wonderful horn player, Sam Palafian, uh, Scott Hartman, those guys, if you were a quintet, uh, you know, student, you went to Boston University. And if you wanted to be an orchestra guy, you went to New England Conservatory. And I thought I was going to be an orchestra guy. So that's that's where I ended up going. Um, but turns out I ended up in a quintet, uh, the Honors Brass Quintet at New England Conservatory. And it was my first quintet ever. And um, it turns out they needed a trumpet player in Atlantic. And my teacher, who was Tim Morrison... We can talk. Do you know? Are you familiar with Tim and his? Uh, I know the name, but I don't well, know that much he, about he's, him. He's he's John Williams, basically personal soloist. He played. Oh, Jay okay. Yes, Cade, yes, yes. Born on the Fourth of, of July. Yeah, and he yeah. he was my teacher, but he had been in Empire Brass, and so those guys knew him, and they said, "Hey, who who should we come listen to? We need a trumpet player." And he said, "Well, come listen to Jeff," and so they came and listened to me, and that's basically how I ended up in in the quintet, but. They had graduated from Boston University before I got there. They had already gotten Columbia Artists Management, and they had already won several chamber music competitions. So I got in on the the first year of touring, you know, when they already had everything all set. So I didn't do the legwork, but I got lucky and got in at the ground level of their professional life. Hmm. They They kind of got things going and then needed a guy and they called you that's right well they came and heard me play in the in our quintet recital and they took me on a tour and auditioned me and what do you think they heard or saw in you both as a player and as a person that made them want to hire you here's what they told me as far as the playing is concerned it was myself and another trumpet player named jim stevenson who's now a well-known composer and he was pretty well-known young trumpet player at the time and what they told me was he sounded good all the time. And that what they told me was you, Jeff, sounded great part of the time and not so good part of the time. But we wanted that great. And we thought that more of it would become great. And so they heard potential, I think, is what they heard in me. I had some flaws, but I could I could I could come up with some really special moments. And I think that's what they they wanted. And what they saw in me as a person, I think, is 
we had a snafu. We had gone into Canada and one of the cars got stopped at the border. I guess we didn't know we weren't supposed to have tapes. You know, this is how long ago it was. We had cassette tapes and they had some t-shirts to sell. And I guess, I don't know if those didn't get reported, but you know, our car had gone, you know, like four hours deep into Canada before we figured out the other car wasn't there. And we had to drive all the way back to sign for those guys and pay a fee and then drive back. And I didn't complain about it. I thought it was kind of funny. And they thought that sort of easygoing person might fit well in this group. Where, where, where would you all tour? The first few years, we did just the United States and Canada. In fact, we had something like a, you know 110 dates the first year I was in the group. And and it was the Columbia Artists Community Concerts Tour, too. So that meant that you'd go to these kind of smaller towns, and it would be a long drive between each town. So basically, we would, we would wake up, have breakfast, drive, have lunch, drive, get to the gig, you know, play the gig, eat dinner, go to the hotel, go to sleep, wake up eat breakfast and do the whole thing. And it was, you know, a month of it, month here, a month there. Uh, but it was the first few years. It was, it was really just kind of the smaller towns in the United States. And really I've been to now all the States, but Hawaii, most of those were because of the Atlantic brass quintet. But as we got more popular, we ended up getting to go to some way cooler places. We went to France and England and Japan and, we went to Guatemala and Panama. Uh, we went to the the United States Information Agency took us to the Middle East in the mid '90s, and we were in and, and Southeast Asia. I say Middle East, but it was like it was Pakistan and India and Oman and Yemen and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. We went to Egypt, you know. So we. We got to see some cool stuff. We really did. We won this big competition in France one year, in the south of France, in a little place called Narbonne. And that, I think, catapulted us to more of international-type travel. And so we really, you know, and, and also ended up getting to um, be fa faculty in residence at Boston University and the Tanglewood Institute. So it turned out to be a really great experience for me, 13 years of it. That's a real success story for a chamber it, group. It really it really was. And, you know, it was a good group of guys. I'm still friends with those guys. And they still play. You know, they don't tour anymore. They, you know, like my, my French horn buddy, Seth Orgel, he's the horn professor at LSU. The, the tuba is a professor at... Um, University of Iowa. And so they all have kind of teaching jobs like that. And a couple of them are freelancers in New York or Boston. The full-time thing isn't just touring, but it's fun. I got to go back and, and play with them for their summer seminar a couple of years back. And it was just such a blast. And boy, I, I noticed a big difference in, in what a quintet player has to do compared to what I have to do in the orchestra. What are the what are the biggest differences? Well, for me, I remember when I 
when I first came to Utah and had to play really full out over the whole orchestra on uh, pictures at an exhibition or Pines of Rome or some loud big piece, that was difficult for me to get that much volume and projection with the necessary warmth of sound. I feel like brass quintet players, though, they have to put their mouth, their chops together for a longer period of time. And so you get tired in the middle of a page when you're an orchestra guy trying to play brass quintet music. You know, it's like you you just, you play all the time in a brass quintet. You don't have to play as as full or as high of dynamics, though, you know, sometimes you do, but you don't have to project out over 95 other players. But when I go back and play in the quintet, my face starts to melt off off my skeleton because it just the muscles are so burning you know that burning feeling when and so i have to train for that i have to train for that um and i think the opposite is also true for quintet players you know you don't have to put your chops together for a very long period of time but your accuracy and your you know you have to sit there and count rest and come in on an f sharp above the staff piano and it be in tune with everyone and then you have to you know you have to lead the sound of the entire orchestra sometimes and that takes a different set of chops you know i when i when i would sit in the orchestra at first my chops would burn in that way i think it can be you can train for both but nobody you know has the time to do that yeah, it's interesting to hear the difference between the preparation and the training. I think um, Chris Gacker and I were talking a little bit about this. It, his interview is soon to publish, probably in the next couple of weeks, but he was talking about the difference between, say, a tennis player mm. who can, you know, the the best ones can play for five hours. Right. While a football player, uh, American football player, right, they can go for 15-second bursts, and then they're done. Right. They have to, they have to take a break. But those bursts are so yes. powerful. Right. You know, pushing the whole line back or something. I, I that's a very good analogy. He's a he's a smart man. Yeah, he knows Decker. a thing or two. He knows a thing or two. Yeah, boy. Yeah, he's okay. Yeah, he's. Cool. I'd like to. I'll have. I'll hear that one for sure. Well, subscribe to the show, and you'll. I, I never did. miss an episode, folks. I did subscribe. <laughs> okay, great. So that was you. <laughs> that was that me. Was... <laughs> now I, I'm always interested in hearing about. Um, like the Atlantic Brass Quintet <clears throat> is very different from probably the most famous quintet is the Canadian Brass. But like if you're going to if you're preparing for you're preparing your repertoire for a concert or a series of concerts. Like what is the demographic that you're keeping in mind or what what are you what are you what were you guys thinking of uh, of how are we going to make this interesting and entertaining for our audience? I think there is a big difference. I I think that the Atlantic Brass tried because you know the canadians were already out there doing their thing and being very successful at it we wanted to try to play more serious chamber music and so um we tried to play at universities and and things like that that were where they would be listening for you know chamber music and we commissioned works and we also played some fun stuff too but 
you know, we played some, you know, early music and Baroque music, which is, I think, legal to transcribe. You know, it still can sound serious, you know, and then we tried to do some very long pieces like we've we did um, Ives Variations on America and, and tried to play through like whole long pieces instead of little three minute things and tried to make it more, you know, chamber music ish in that way. And instead of playing, you know, a fun swing jazz thing at the end for fun, we would dig in a little bit more to the world music. And we found some Macedonian street band music that we transcribed from an old cassette tape that someone pressed the button and people were modulating at the wrong time. And, you know, we kept that in the arrangement. And I think that is difficult when you when you try something like that, because you know, of the Canadian brass's reputation already, um, some of the people who came to our concerts were hoping to see that we would be fun and kick our feet. And I, I don't know what they do now, but try to be try to be fun and and be entertaining in that way. And we just weren't very good at that. We were more of players that wanted to, you know, you know, play new music and serious works. And and so some of the people that came wanted us to do that and it didn't it didn't help our our numbers going through. So that's why probably we never became as big as they were. But I think we did what we set out to accomplish. Well, not everybody digs the Canadian brass. Like right. you know, back in the eighties and the nineties they were wearing their Chuck Taylors with their right. tuxes. And that's it's cute. It was fun. Yeah, it was fun. It, it, it was a novelty, but not everybody likes that. But right. other people are going to, they're going to dig what Atlantic Brass is doing. Right. And so we were hoping, you know, to attract those people. And we right, did that right. for quite some time. I mean, we've already talked about the dramatic differences between the brass quintet life and the orchestra life. Right. What prompted that saying, I want to make this change in my career? I was doing a lot of the arranging, you know, and, and most of the arranging. And I liked it. But I had run out of things that I really cared about arranging, you know, and, and not knowing where, you know, your next gig was going to be, not knowing your schedule next year, you know, not not having health insurance, silly things. But I wanted to play Stravinsky. I wanted to play Bartok. I wanted to play Tchaikovsky and Beethoven. I told you at the beginning of this episode that I was at New England Conservatory trying to be an orchestra guy, whereas everyone else was over at Boston University trying to be a quintet. And I had always kind of seen myself as an orchestra guy wearing quintet shoes for the moment. I remember the, the Boston Symphony was starting to call me all the time to come and, and sub with them. I was really excited by that, and I remember our manager was quite upset that I might have to miss an Atlantic Brass concert to play in the Boston Symphony. And I thought, shouldn't it be the opposite? I mean, I think you should be happy that one of your players is getting to do something like this. And it kind of turned me off in that way, first of all. And the second of all, like I said, the repertoire. I wouldn't trade a day of, of my life with the Atlantic Brass Quintet and those friendships I made and that music I played in those places I saw. But I am more at home now playing in the orchestra. I know where my seat is. I can go get my music every week. It's different music every week. You know, I know, you know, how much money I'm going to make. I know 
you know, how to maintain my chops. If it's going to be a difficult week this week and a light week this week, I have to practice more that week and I have to prepare for this fast tonguing thing coming up. I, I'm more made that way and I can prepare that way and, and do my job. I think, I think I can do my job better than I could do it when I was in a quintet. And, um, there's never a dull moment because the music is different every single week. Um, sometimes we have a few different concerts every week, especially during the summers and, uh, keeps you on your toes. And, you know, it's, it's a whole different ball game being in a 52 week orchestra, trying to maintain trumpet chops over that entire time. And after, weeks. yeah, so and that's per we, year we get, or per we, two years, 52 weeks per <laughs> year. We get like, uh, eight weeks vacation but it's called a 52-week orchestra and they pay us for every of one of those weeks and you know a couple of the weeks are during the summer that we get off and a couple are during the christmas time the holiday season time and you know it's it's not eight weeks at a time and we never get you know more than two weeks off in a whole year so it's it's a it's a daily maintenance job and I've gotten to where I feel like I fit in better here. And so I feel like I can, I can, my career can last as long as I need it to here. Yeah. Your demeanor does not suggest that you are overly stressed. I am not overly You stressed. seem very, very calm, at peace, at ease. You well, seem thank to really you. enjoy. I, I am. I've done a lot of things. I've seen a lot of things and I've been stressed out a long, a lot of days <laughs> in my life. But, uh, I think I'm at a point where I'm a veteran. I understand how it works and I feel pretty comfortable in my skin at this point. It's well, a good spot. It. Yes. And that's what makes this conversation so enjoyable. Oh, good. I'm glad. Minimal editing will be required. Nice. For this one. My question is this. Let's say that myself, who, someone who has some chops, and has, you know, I've, I've done a few things, and back in the day I used to play a lot and played well. Mm-hmm. But it's not my gig anymore. Right. My, my main gig is podcasting, and now trumpet is more of a hobby, something uh-huh. that I do. I do a, preparing for a concert with my aunt to do in, in Oregon. But beyond that, that's, it's, it's a hobby. Okay. But let's say that I decide that I want to take Travis Peterson's place. Okay. Because he's going to retire because he wants to go back to drum corps. Right. His, his position in the Utah Symphony is open, and I'm going to go for it. Now, I, I play a little bit, but my question goes beyond physical pre- preparation, because we all know that it, it, take, it takes a lot of practice and getting ready and physical and everything. But my question is more mentally, spiritually, psychologically. What would I need to do to prepare for an audition, say, six months from now? Man, I have, I have read so many performance psychology books, and I, I used to uh, make an appointment with Don Green. I don't know if you know yes. who he is. Yes, I know him well. Like once a week for a few months, just to, not because you're in trouble, but just because you want, you want your your mind to grow with the rest of you. And I, I think there's a, a huge advantage to just 
thinking about yourself in a positive manner. You know, I am, you know, we, we laugh at Stuart Smalley, the character on Saturday Night Live, but doggone it, people like me. But yeah. you really do have to like yourself and have to believe in yourself. And even if in the back of your mind you really don't, if you tell yourself enough times that you do, then it becomes true. And you and you really do. I have this exercise. Uh, my son is a collegiate baseball player, and we do these things together. And one of one of the things that that I do is I just pick out a dot, um, like like a note, like a quarter note or something, or you know, a, something in a, a book that has a dot or something in the title. And I I set a timer for five minutes, and I stare at that dot. And you think you're doing something really silly and a waste waste of time, but at the end of that five minutes, um, you're able to focus on the thing that you're supposed to be focusing on. You know, the first few days you try it, you're thinking, why am I doing this? Or I have to go to the bathroom. Or what was that dog barking? Or my phone's ringing. And a week later, those things are more in the background of your mind. And you're still focusing on what you're doing. So when you get out on that stage, you have the ability to compartmentalize and focus on that breath and playing those notes that you're playing at the time and not worrying about what the people around you are thinking. If you can see feet tapping underneath the screen or if you can hear people warming up in the background or if you're in a concert hearing, you know, people cough or you're able to focus on the thing that you're supposed to be focusing on. And and it seems very simple, but if you if you train your mind to stay focused on that thing by adding minutes to this exercise, then it's really hard to throw you off your game. So that's what I would say. We could go into a whole bunch of stuff that I like and that I do and that I would do for an audition mentally and sure. we have training that I go through. Go for it. Go but for it. oh okay. Yeah. I when I'm training for an audition, I I like to use the time. I feel like uh, wasting a whole day at an audition is what usually happens. You show up, you get your number, you wait around, you know. So when I prepare for auditions, I find a church or something, or I use my house, and I, I show up at in the morning, and I take all day to do that audition. I wait around for, you know, an hour or something. I set my watch to a random time, and I wait until that alarm goes off before I can warm up. And then I wait until it goes off again before there's the knock on the door that when they come and get you. And then I walk out and I announce a number and I have my recording already going and I play a list of seven excerpts because that's likely what you're going to do. You're not going to play a whole list, you know, and then I go back into the room, wait another hour and go and play a second round. You know, and I use up an entire day. I have a book. I have a bottle of water. You know, I have a banana, whatever. And I think that's something that I discovered helped me the most. Because, you know, you, you go into your practice room and you warm up and you play a list and you're done. That's not how it, how it works. So you're all comfy and cozy. You just finished warming up. And, of course, you're ready to play pictures at an exhibition. But sitting there for an hour, not knowing when the knock on the door is going to come, makes it a different ball game. And if you can practice that, if you can get it as close to the situation as possible, I think mentally that's what helps me the most. How do you mimic the nerves when you're doing this? I drink a ton of coffee. 
Wow. And I, uh, I've done this thing where I would like, I I don't know what to call it, but like sometimes go up and down the stairs. I get myself out of breath and try to play Schumann too, you know, and you have to really focus on, you know, the proper things to get that breath to come across smoothly. And so I, I make my body not in the perfect shape to, to do those things. And that mimics, it doesn't mimic the nerves as much, but it mimics the heartbeat. The other thing I do to mimic the nerves is I play for people. Like if I had to play for Chris Gecker, that would make me super nervous. And if I don't have someone to play for, I put people out in the hall in my mind that make me nervous, that I'd like to impress. And if you up the adrenaline incrementally, like start out playing for your dog, then your wife, and then play for your buddies, and then you know, add someone that you're uncomfortable around and then add people you really admire and that sort of thing. You can up the adrenaline so that you don't go straight from practice room adrenaline to audition adrenaline. Yeah, it's amazing how playing just for people walking by on the street just changes the dynamic completely. Totally. I played, sometimes I'll just go down to the boardwalk here in Virginia Beach and just pull out my horn and just play. Nobody's nobody's listening. Nobody's... (laughs) giving me any money, which right. I can't understand why not. They're supposed to. But 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 the difference between that and just playing here in my apartment in town, it's just completely different. It is. And I get tired faster. Yes. It's so it's so weird. It is because you're you're paying attention to the distractions and you're hoping that that someone likes it and instead huh. of just simply focusing on the dot of right. what you would be focusing on in your practice room. Huh. You know, all that takes up chops. Yes. It's so interesting how the, the mental element is so often overlooked. I know. And I, I know a lot of people that now it's the norm to do mental study before an audition as well. Do mental work, like mental practice, working just on the mind. Like if you were to just work on tonguing without the trumpet, with a metronome or something, just working on just what the mind is thinking, like picturing yourself playing well and, you know, all these exercises that all these great sports athletic trainer, mental trainers are doing with people right now. That's the norm. So people who don't do that, I don't know how they can compete. Do you think the kids that are coming out of the conservatories, say here in 2021, are they of higher caliber musician than they were back when you were of age? I, I think so. I The players like Phil Smith, Herseth, those guys lay the groundwork. You know, you get to a different set of players, they lay more groundwork. Things become more possible. Things become more efficient. Teachers learn more techniques. I think it would be awfully hard to compete with those, those kids right now. I'll tell you what. You know, I never hear anything about the Utah Symphony, but it seems like they seem to be healthy and going strong. I, I think so. I mean, I had never really thought about the Utah Symphony when I was in Boston about to move out here. But there are only a few 52-week uh, groups, you know, and it's one of them. And this community really supports their symphony. They really want a symphony here. I think we're the smallest city to support a 52-week group. And uh, during the shutdown, the 2020 uh, covid shut down our uh management kept us above water the whole time i know that a lot of great groups really had financial difficulties and struggled during that time and 
we really didn't struggle. I mean, I don't know how they did it, but I'm so, so grateful to them for keeping our heads, you know, above water on during that time. Maybe you'll hear more of the Utah Symphony, hopefully. I mean, we've got more and more good players coming in since I got here. I mean, listen to Travis and some of the, every string player we get is better than the last set of people we got. You know what I mean? Like you said, the, the younger players, they're all at conservatories. They're all coming from New World Symphony and they're all winning jobs. I, I might take a road trip to the West Coast. Why don't you? And I'll stop in Utah because I'm, I'm, I'm planning to go to Oregon to do this concert with my aunt, Sylvia. She's oh, cool. a won- wonderful pianist. Oh, wow. But I think that the airlines aren't going to be in business, honestly. I know. It's and insane. so maybe I should take a road trip. Do it. Over the, over the Christmas You're holidays. welcome here. You're welcome here. Okay. Well, folks, uh, this is James Newcomb. You're listening to the Trumpet Dynamics podcast slash show slash production slash whatever adjective you want to give it. But we've been talking with Jeff Luke, the associate principal trumpet of the Utah Symphony, formerly of the Atlantic Brass Quintet, uh, faculty of Tanglewood. And it's just been wonderful. Do you do you have a, like a blog or a website or anything that any, you know, you'd like people to know about? I I almost do. I, I would love people to know, but I, I, I've arranged all this music and I'm trying to make it available, but I'm just so terrible at that side of things. Okay. I get distracted and start practicing or something, you know, okay. but I'm trying to get a website up, uh, would just be jefflukemusic.com where my most, mostly quintet arrangements, but just tons of arrangements would be available. But that's right. a, a long answer to no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, keep in mind jefflukemusic.com, and we're going to put it out there for the universe to hear and respond and put the wheels in motion for that website to come together. Awesome. Thanks, James. We've spoken it into existence. Very nice. I appreciate that. Yes, sir. Well, thanks for pressing play on today's episode. Make sure you press that little subscribe button on your podcast player if you haven't already, so you'll never miss an episode when they publish. And if you want to dive deeper, you can visit me on the web at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com, where you'll find ways to connect with me via social media and even a customized mobile app that has a plethora of material I think you'll find interesting. Again, that's jamesnewcombontrumpet.com. This is James Newcomb signing off.